This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's second O Ship, the first time we've ever done two O Ships in one week. This is a lot of ship we're dealing with this week. Now, specifically, uh, we've got a great guest on today. I've been chatting with him pre-show. I think you're going to have a lot of fun with him. Very smart and very entertaining guy uh, called Andrew Gazdecki. Andrew is the CEO and founder of a firm called MicroAcquire. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about in a moment. I wish had existed when I was doing one of my last startups. He's also the former CEO and founder of Business Apps, which he started in college and ended up selling. He's the CEO and founder of altcoin.io, which he also exited. But today we're going to lean in a lot more around his current company, MicroAcquire. What they do is they help entrepreneurs basically buy and sell startups in, in a marketplace format. And the firm has quite literally helped hundreds of startups get acquired. And I believe I saw they facilitated over 500 million in closed deals. In fact, actually moments before the show today, he actually just tweeted out uh, that in October, they did around 47 million in closed startup acquisitions. That's up from 46 million in September and over 174 million in just the last four months. So huge congrats to Andrew and the micro acquire team. And so one of the things that makes his story so interesting is that, you know, not only is a serial entrepreneur, but he's effectively bootstrapped his way into the, these life-changing acquisitions. And so, you know, when you then take take the fact that he's got a company that helps other CEOs or they bootstrapped or not find their own path uh, to acquisition, I think that Andrew has kind of a, a very unique perspective on really what it takes to achieve this uh, and make it possible. So we're going to pick Andrew's brain. I encourage you, if you've got questions to ask in, in chat, whether you're watching live or after the show. Thanks so much. And here we go with another week of OSHIP. Andrew, welcome to Ship. How are you? Hey, Freddie. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Excited to be here. My pleasure. So, you know, I, tr- I tried to do your your very cool uh, background justice, but I didn't want to steal your thunder. And I think it'd be really great if uh, we could help some of the audience who maybe hasn't hasn't met you or hasn't heard about you before understand a little bit about kind of you know where you got your start uh, as a quite prolific serial entrepreneur. Yeah, I would say. I've kind of been an entrepreneur my whole life. I was that strange kid who had an eBay store when I was like 14. I did all the cliche stuff like selling Pokemon cards when everyone was collecting them. And I think my real first entrepreneurial venture, if you will, was I created a job board in college. It was called something really lame, like phone freelancer. It was called phonefreelancer.com. And it helped mobile developers connect with businesses. And then I sold that and that eventually led to business apps, which was a startup I ran for about 10 years and then uh, exited that when I was, I was 29. But I started early. I, I you know, some kids want to be like the quarterback of a professional football team. I was mm-hmm. always, 
I fell in love with business early. I guess yeah. you could say I got lucky. Out of interest, was it was it in your family? Were there other entrepreneurs, or were you the the first entrepreneur in the family? So I I grew up in a a town called San Clemente, and so I didn't really come from too much. Not like what was me or anything like that. But yeah, San Clemente is like a it's like a wealthy area, and so yes. all my friends like when they were you know living in these huge houses and stuff like that. I always wondered like how do you get that? Like, how do you, you know? And so I think just seeing that level of wealth growing up made me just kind of think, I don't know, can I, can I get there? How do you get there? And so, uh, that kind of drove me into, you know, business really just to, you know, for a lot of people, entrepreneurship and startups is glamorous and it's cool to do. Um, for me, it was like a survival mechanism. Like I, you know, if I wanted a skateboard i had to go out and figure out a way to make money to buy one um yeah. so that's that's kind of how i landed that. in there uh, and uh, uh you know when i when i was a kid I, my mom always used to tell the story of how when i asked what i wanted to be when i grew up and i would apparently i was telling people that i wanted to be a businessman i wasn't very specific about what type of business but apparently <laughs> i always wanted to be a, 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 a businessman you know one of the, one of the dangers to being uh, uh, an entrepreneur, I think, is especially in America, you, entrepreneurialism, the American dream, it's such a core part of you know U.S. culture. But I also think there's a lot of you know things like tech crunch and and so on that can really glamorize what it means to be like a tech tech uh, CEO. But it's hard. I don't think people realize it's far hard. You know, you get these shining moments, but it's it's a it's a really hard racket, so to speak. And I don't think people realize quite quite how hard it's going to be when they start. I couldn't agree with that more. And I think, you know, when you really think about just what the reality of entrepreneurship is, like hundreds of thousands of startups are being created every single year. And then out of that, I think it's half a percent raise venture capital. And so there's this huge, and then out of that, just 1% will reach a billion dollar, I hate this term, but unicorn status. And so if you just think about those numbers, the reality for entrepreneurships and startups is a lot different than what you read about in the media. It's not just billion dollar outcomes. It's not a hundred million dollar raises. There's, you know, quite literally thousands of people all over the world building quiet, you know, profitable businesses. And to me, I think that's awesome. That's, that's what entrepreneurship is in my mind. It's a lot less sexy and glamorous than, you know, you read in the press. But because I knew it would be impossible for us to get through this chat without mentioning unicorns, I did decide to keep my unicorn <laughs> themed uh, coffee coffee mug today. And I think uh, most of the unicorn stuff, as you know, is uh, is there's a lot of fluff and BS there, which is why my cup says uh, "powered by unicorn farts," which is how I feel about most of the unicorn statuses out there. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it's it's a big achievement if if you can get there. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs you know, think that's the definition of success with startups. And I think it could be further. You don't need to build a billion dollar company to be successful. As build a great business. Yeah, I think so. Let's, I want to, we're going to lean into that, but I want to uh, go back in time a little bit first. So the first notable success that I think uh, you, again, you've been working with different businesses, but business apps was kind of the, the first big business that you exited from. And I read that you had only pulled in about a, a hundred k of of equity investment. I assume that you bootstrapped a, a big a big chunk of it. I'd love to 
uh, you know, certainly the earlier stages. Uh, I'd love to see what you think is the is the key to scaling basically a business with little or no capital. Yeah, with little to no capital. So one metric that we'd always track at Business Apps, and for those that don't know what Business Apps, and you probably don't, um, but uh, Business Apps was a do-it-yourself mobile app builder. So we help small businesses create native iOS and Android applications. And uh, candidly, we were we kind of got lucky. I was 21 when I started it. I had some unique insights from the job board I described to you around you know, what people wanted in their mobile applications. But one metric that we would track religiously when bootstrapping business apps, and we did only raise that 100K, but it was customer payback period. So basically we land a customer, how long would it take for us to be net positive? So for some venture-backed businesses, you can afford to have a customer payback period of 18 months or more, 24 months. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't. So we had to try to keep that under 30 days. And we'd average around like 20 to, I think 28 days was the number that we would. So essentially, every time a customer signs up, we were profitable with that customer within 28 days. And so that allowed us to aggressively reinvest into the business to scale the business. And the second thing I'd add is you want a nonlinear growth strategy. And what I mean by that is distribution is so important and we couldn't afford to hire a giant sales team. So the way that we scaled business apps was, and this was actually feedback from a, a customer. It was, it, it's a funny story. Long, long story short, there's this guy in Switzerland who made a few apps for hotels and I called him just because I thought he owned the hotels and I wanted to talk to a rich person. And I don't know, I thought it was, <laughs> you own hotels, like maybe you can teach me something. Uh, and what he what he told me was he actually was building apps for his hotel clients that he had built websites for and he managed their social media accounts and stuff like that. And so we pivoted towards a white label reseller model where instead of selling one mobile app to one small business at a time, we would partner with web agencies and then towards the tail end of business apps, even public companies and kind of all the do-yourself website, but anyone that was selling to small businesses, we'd rebrand our software so they can offer it as a solution to their customers at their own price point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, white labeling. And so we had, Mm -hmm. I think at our peak, uh, 5,000 partners in 50, 60 different countries. We translate our product into 20 different languages. And at the peak of business apps, one in every 20 iPhone apps created was created on the uh, business apps platform. So we were the number one producer of iOS apps, to my knowledge, at least. Wow, that's amazing. And and then if you kind of take this through the lens of a micro acquire, not specific to the to the work that you've done to build that business, but through the lens of seeing so many, so many businesses now, you know, pass through that that company. You know, what, what advice would you give people that are, are, you know, running their own businesses, basically, uh, you know, you, do you think, say, hey, this is what you should focus on if you're trying to, if you're trying to bootstrap, where, where should their focus be to scale a business when they haven't got a bunch of cash to run with, basically? Yeah, that's a good question. My best advice is always to focus on just what you enjoy. I think when you work on stuff that, and I know that's kind of a cop-out answer, but when you focus on stuff you enjoy, you're going to be good at it. So it's really hard to force yourself to be good at sales if you're not good at sales. 
it's hard to force yourself to be good at marketing if you're not good at marketing, but you might be a fantastic, you know, social media person that can really craft a story or maybe going podcasts like this is a great way to get the word out about your business. So I'd, I'd really focus on figuring out what is that channel. Maybe it's SEO. Maybe it's uh, building a YouTube channel. There's so many different options and distribution channels that just weren't available a decade ago. Mm-hmm. I would figure out which one you enjoy the most and you can consistently show up at and maybe have some sort of unique advantage just because you're good at it, you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go all in on that distribution channel, own it before moving on to other ones. Yeah, it's interesting. So I... I also, uh, it's not a cop out, you get a purse <laughs> because uh, I, I also uh, have told quite a few people over the years, like, you know, do, do what you love and do what you enjoy. And so I would argue that part of the success, uh, that at least uh, when I think of my own career and some of the other people that I've watched over the years, yeah, I'm not convinced I was always the smartest guy in the room. I was definitely willing to work harder than anyone else. And the reason I was willing to work harder was because I loved it. And so when you, it's easy to, it's easy to put the hours in when you, when you're passionate about what you're doing. Now, when you think about like scaling a startup though, you know, a lot of, especially with tech SaaS startups, which which I know an area you have some expertise in, a lot of times the early founders are, are the product guy, you know, the product person, I should really say. So whoever the developer is and maybe their engineering focus and to your quote, like maybe they don't love selling or they don't love marketing. Should they hire for that or should they find a partner that loves that thing like they love their thing? That is kind of like the kiss of death for a lot of startups is, you know, they have a really good focus on product, but they never, they kind of build in an echo chamber where they never build a sales process or marketing process. And you know, you need both to succeed. And so to be frank, I'm not a technical founder. I don't, I don't even have, I don't know how our servers work. Like I pass those keys off to other members of our, of our team at MicroAcquire. So marketing and sales have always kind of come natural to me. So if I was a product focused founder, but I've learned to manage product is probably mm-hmm. my bigger point. So mm-hmm. I think the best thing you could do as a founder is invest in yourself and just try and learn sales and marketing. If you can find a co-founder, I think that's great. I definitely don't recommend starting out and hiring someone because what you want to do is you want to understand how that role works, mm-hmm. uh, what is the sales process. And when you do that, when you go out to hire, even if you go out to find a co-founder, just having a little bit of information on these are mm-hmm. kind of like the value props that really stick or stand out. Mm-hmm. That allows you to really ensure you're hiring the right person. And you mm-hmm. can kind of give them a leg up on finding the sales process. Cause I think it's kind of a unicorn role when it's like, I built a great product. Can you help me figure out how to sell it? It's like the, the person that can do that is, Oh, the founder is always best suited in my opinion. So it's, it's hard to hire. And I worry that founders that try to do that will just spend just as much time as a sales and marketing founder trying to find a technical CTO founder, if you've heard of those sort of debates. I uh, find myself wondering about this stuff a lot as well. And, and uh, you know, when people, if you can find a great founder, awesome, more a co-founder, more power to you. I think a lot of times people though, you'll have like a dominant founder and then co-founders and then the co-founders have 
they they're committed, but maybe they don't stick around that commitment as, as long in, in the long run. And then it creates complexities in the cap table later. If you've got, you know, partners that, that you know, that, that weren't leaning in as much as maybe one smaller subset of, uh, original founders it, it can be tricky and especially when you start dealing with like sales folks and so on you know uh, obviously you're, you're a charismatic guy that's able to sell, sell your products but i think a lot of i think a lot of sales and marketing you know folks out there uh, are more are more sizzle than steak because <laughs> uh, it's a harder some kind of sometimes can be a harder thing to to measure i'd love to ask you you know we bootstrapping is is a kind of a big theme that i want to have come through uh today and when you start thinking about, you know, bootstrapping, you know, what, what is the, the best part of bootstrapping and the worst part of bootstrapping? The best part is you get to keep the majority of your equity. And when you go to sell your business, it's, uh, it's substantially easier. You know, as your business grows, ironically, the buyer pool for who can actually buy your business goes down. It just, it's logical. Like any sort of high asset, um, high value asset, there's just less buyers available. And this applies to like billion dollar companies. There's like 20 other companies that are able to pay that much money for your business. And so, and as an entrepreneur, you know, I think people forget just how life changing an acquisition for five or one or two or three or four, whatever million doesn't have to be, you don't need to sell your business for a hundred million dollars to be super happy and feel successful. The only thing that's going to change is you might get another house and your car might be a little faster. So that's the, that's the best part is just the flexibility to have control over selling your business for, you know, $5 million. And then that can be truly life changing. And then the downside is, I mean, gosh, you got to scratch and claw for every customer and every hire at business apps. We had a saying, you know, we only hired when it hurt and it hurt a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. because everyone has to basically do a lot more than you typically would. You're just basically over understaffed the entire journey. So, and then it's, it can be harder to, like, I, I could keep going, but I'd say the biggest one is, you know, you can feel understaffed essentially the whole, the whole ride. One of the things I, I like about bootstrapping is that scratching for every, you know, you know, clawing and scratching for every moment to be successful. I think that breeds focus. And so I think there's something that like, or at least the successful ones, I think if like, if your resources are limited, it really focuses, it, force, it should force you to like, you know, be more resolute and focused in the actions you take because you haven't got you haven't got room to screw up. You haven't got room to be loosey goosey about stuff. Um, obviously, once you start you know, making ca- you know positive cash flow and you've got excess money, then you know you can do what you like. But I think in the earliest days, yeah, that that can be something that people really need. I, you know, I don't want to project my own my own mistakes too badly, but I can say like with the with the company that where I raised money, I felt like I could scale so quickly because I had all this cash to play with, and that and that actually that. I, I didn't make me as focused as I wanted to to be. Um, have you ever seen you know that kind of behavior before, or, or, or you know did, any any reaction to that in general? Yeah, definitely. And on your first point, I, I completely agree. I mm-hmm. always say you know sometimes building on a budget can build a better product because the constraints mm-hmm. really force creativity. You're going to think twice about adding an extra feature or 
launching this ad campaign, you're going to track every, cause you have to, you don't have like four years of runway or two years, whatever it may be. You have probably like two months. So like every <laughs> month is kind of like, you know, you're definitely not overspending. So you're in effect building a, an extremely capital efficient business, which I think will bode really, really well over the next um, couple of years. So if you can do it, you know, I think it's, it's the way to go depending on what you're, you're trying to get out of a startup. And then related to your second question, you know, I view venture capital just as a tool and that tool is a very dangerous tool. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think a lot of founders raise venture capital not knowing what it really is. And it's basically rocket fuel. And if you build a rocket and it's not ready to have all that fuel injected into it, it's just going to blow up. Like you're just going to, you know, the typical like, all right, let's go. And it just explodes. And so if you do raise venture capital, I always recommend, you know, just try bootstrapping first so you can, you know, validate the business. You can command a higher valuation when you do raise. You'll have a lot more insight into where to allocate the capital or you just might not want to because, you know, you have things going well at, at your business. But I think too many entrepreneurs, you know, think it makes things easier when in actuality it can usually make things a lot harder. And a lot of great businesses that are funded could be awesome, you know, 10, $20 million outcomes, but they go to zero because they had to go for the, you know, multi hundred million or billion dollar outcome. Yeah. I love the uh, analogy, by the way, I think that's again, just my own, my reflecting on my own life that, that, uh, that perfectly summarizes what I did. My rocket ship wasn't raggedy, and I pumped a ton of rocket fuel into it. And 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 uh, if I if you know, if I had gone back in time, I would have I would have bootstrapped it in the beginning and then done it afterwards. So, uh, great advice. I'd like to uh, before so in a moment, I want to kind of jump over to more specific stuff around micro acquiring some of the learnings you've had there. But I've got one kind of a more a key question first. If you a long time successful people that I've chatted with over the years, both before Oship and now with with this web series, I find that they can kind of look back at their career, and there's there's a moment when it like it kind of flips. So I, maybe that was during your business apps uh, years, but there was a moment when it was like, yeah, this thing happened, and then whether that's the rocket ship took off or it was gave you this moment of credibility that made everything else easier after it is there a moment like that out of interest in, in your career where you feel like this was like a, a key pivotal pivotal moment for you yeah i can think of two i got to give a shout out to an individual named christian freeland he started a company called build.com it basically is one of the largest e-commerce companies think home depot lowe's online if you want to buy anything for home repair. And he grew that to a few billion in GMV and uh, never raised any outside capital and sold the business. But he was my first angel investor and he was essentially my my business mentor. And when I say business mentor, like sometimes you talk to investors like once a month or something like that. We would talk like every day, like the amount that he, I think, I think he invested like 75K or something like that. But he gave me millions in terms of just his time. And he just really, I, I just owe, I think, a lot of my success to him. So I want to give him a shout out. And then in terms of just inflection points at business apps, the story I told you. So 
before we pivoted to a white label model, we were cold calling small businesses and we would say, Hey, what's your mobile app strategy? And they'd be like, what mobile appetizers? Is that what you're looking for? And this is in 2010. So apps and those words just didn't really, you know, connect. And so I don't, if we didn't make that pivot and as soon as we did, we just started growing like crazy. And so those two moments stick out to me immediately. That's awesome. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, little known fact uh, for even some of my old friends, their original inspiration. So before Chameleon Collective, I had uh, this company called iChameleon. And uh, the reason that iChameleon was actually the name of a white label ISP product. And I can't tell you like how much I believe in the white labeling model. You know, I don't think enough people use this as like a partnership structure to get out there. And you know, at the end of the day, you're you're tapping into effectively, if we were to use like today's terms, like social capital, social credibility, you're tapping into that of another brand and their audience. And if you can use that to scale, it's a super, super effective uh, method. And uh, great, by the way, anyone who's uh, tuning in, whether you're tuning in via YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, any of the other platforms, again, please feel free to leave comments or add, ask questions and and we're happy to uh, to address them on the air. So, uh, Andrew, I want to change gears a little bit. Uh, so we mentioned MicroAcquire. I gave a, a little bit of a setup for it, but uh, for people maybe just tuning in now, can you both resummarize what MicroAcquire does? And then I'd really love to hear what inspired you to start the company. Yeah, absolutely. So MicroAcquire is a marketplace to buy and sell startups. And to date, we've helped well over a billion in terms of facilitating wow. closed. Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of wild. Got to update that really. website, man. I quoted five hundred million. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know it. It, it, it even surprises me because originally I didn't think the idea would work. A marketplace where you can sell your business for millions of dollars, and so I started the business just really out of kind of scratching my own itch after selling business apps, kind of the aha moment was I had so many of my friends that were running other startups reach out to me and say, like, how did you sell your business? What was due diligence? What was the legal part? Like, are you still alive? Like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and I just thought, you know, okay, we have all these books on like fundraising, marketing, sales, but there was really no education around you know, the most important part of the founder's journey, which a lot of the times is the exit. And so I just saw this huge void in the startup ecosystem where there needed to be an easier way to sell your business outside of hiring an investment bank or a business broker. And so that was the inspiration. It really was just, it started with meager, or I should say, you know, just really just to try and help entrepreneurs sell their businesses. And it's since expanded into something that I didn't expect, but obviously I think we have a lot more room ahead of us, but yeah, just scratching my own itch and just, you know, building the thing I wish I had. Cause when I sold business apps and also Allcoin, finding the buyer was just so hard. And then going through the process and understanding the terms was difficult. So just our goal and our vision for the company is to standardize and streamline and just make acquisitions super easy for you know, startups all across the globe, not just in the United States. I do think there's something particularly poetic about, I believe you said that your first business was technically selling 
Pokemon cards on eBay. So you have actually gone from your first role in marketplaces back back to marketplaces again. So it's, it really shows how some of the things you do at the earliest parts of your career can still really drive what you're what you're doing uh, doing now. And frankly, echoing you know your sentiment uh, about you know, w- wishing you had that business. Yeah, again, my 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 third company uh, guide, uh, which which you know, failed, and there was a hard ending for that business. I feel like if Microacquire had been around, like we had great tech and a really good team, like there was value there. But I just didn't know what to do. I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't know how to, you know, how to take a company at that size and that scale that maybe hadn't quite nailed its product market fit, but still had value to get someone else to buy it. And so, so I'd love to understand when, when you look at microacquire today, like what kind of people are selling their companies? Does it have to be some footies like, yeah, I'm crushing it. I'm knocking out 40% EBITDA done. And, you know, I've got a million dollar a month, uh, you know, run rates. Or, or could it be people that maybe haven't quite nailed it, but there's something of value there, that, or they believe there's some value there? I guess the market determines that, right? But Yeah, I, it's kind of a mix of, of everything. Our sweet spot is definitely profitable SaaS companies. Those tend mm-hmm. to be of highest demand, just given our, our buyer pool is comprised of private equity, family offices, uh, venture-backed companies, public companies, and then a lot of you know, first-time buyers that are looking to take over and scale a business that's been, you know, grown to a certain point by another entrepreneur. So it, it it really depends, but we see kind of all of it. We see businesses selling for 10K and we see businesses selling for 10 million. And then we see businesses that sell for 5 million and it's a soft landing like you're describing. And then we see, we see a bootstrap company where the owner has 100% equity in the business and they sell for 5 million and then they're a millionaire. So we see kind of this really interesting of, we like to say we see macro acquisitions and also micro acquisitions and everything in between. So it's, you know, we see a lot of, and that's probably the most rewarding part about the business is, you know, these are like life-changing events. You know, if you're in a, you know, country where, like a, a story I like to share is there's an individual who sold a company for you know 20k and him, I believe he's in Pakistan. 20k in Pakistan goes you know very very long ways. And another one was there was a student who sold a it was a platform that helped engineers pass uh, coding interviews for the Fang companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, mm-hmm. etc. And he sold that for a quarter million and then. He wrote me the most heartfelt email of like, I'm paying off all my debt. I'm buying my mom like a house, basically. So people, Mm. you know, all across the globe basically have access to, you know, a massive buyer network, regardless of, you know, the size of your business or your location. So I I love sharing that aspect. But we do see acquisitions of all shapes and sizes. One of the things, uh, as you noted, when you start thinking about selling a company, it's complicated. There are a lot of things that you know the buyer is going to want to see so they can feel confident that they're basically acquiring something that's been properly thought through and vetted and so on. And I think you could see some early stage companies where maybe they've got great technology and a great platform, but maybe aren't super sophisticated on the business side. So they wouldn't necessarily know how to position themselves to, for sale normally. What what kind of things are, are is is microacquire doing to 
try and prep companies so that they're they're packaged up nicely so that buyers understand how to buy them if that makes if that makes sense like for example i saw on twitter the other day you mentioned like a pnl builder uh that i thought was really interesting yeah so we're i was just about to to mention that so probably the biggest feature that we've released and we've had this for a while but we made a huge upgrade where you can connect you know, Stripe or Paddle or Chargebee, whatever your billing system is, to show your real financial metrics, because that's typically the first question most buyers have. And then we made a huge upgrade to that to where it's essentially a P&L builder that'll give a 36-month view of your revenue and your expenses, and it's all anonymized, so it just gives kind of an accurate picture of, you know, your true financials in terms of how much revenue are you making, is it profitable, are you losing money? And most startups don't have a clean 36-month P&L. So we're mm-hmm. able to generate that quickly. And then let's say you do find a buyer. We have um, a letter of intent builder. We have an asset purchase agreement builder. Mm-hmm. We have a number of different materials like a data room that you can set up within mm-hmm. microwires. So all the things that you typically need. And then on top of that, resources and education on what are these things? What is a data room? What is a letter of intent? What is an asset purchase agreement? What is a P&L? Like if that's a question. So so just as important, the tooling is, is important, but equally important in my mind is the education around, you know, what are certain deal structures that are common and what's a good way to negotiate against the letter of intent what are terms to avoid and everything that we do at microquire we do in favor of the founder because we yeah. want to help founders uh maximize their exit and so when they get to the table with you know mr private equity you know they feel more confident in terms of you know knowing the lingo or what the process is or what due diligence is and what to expect so they can really get the most out of selling their business but um, we're trying to innovate across every single step of the seller's journey when you go to sell your business from meeting the buyer to again due diligence to the legal stuff to transferring the assets and then all the way to close and then post transition and out of interest to you by the way i love uh, how founder centric you are and i think having these tools is is huge for people uh, have you ever spoke to any investment bankers about how they feel about uh, micro acquire i have yeah some are nice uh some kind of laugh at it uh, in a in a nice way. Because I suspect bankers, they'll, be they'll, they'll be eating crow in a couple of years. Anyone who snickered will regret the uh, snicker those snickers later down the road. <laughs> yeah, you know it's all it's all fun. It's just business. But you know, one email that comes to mind is like, I remember investment banker signed up and was like, laugh out loud. Like we do like hundred million dollar deals. Good luck competing with them. something like that. That was kind of petty and i just said that's awesome like i'm really happy for you (laughs) but i think it's just kind of you know when you when you start to get emails like that i i take it as a compliment you know it's just i uh you uh you seem like a great easygoing dude and i think uh you know those kind of things it's not worth fighting people the last laugh is spoken in action and and what the company does so it's not worth getting pulled in that kind of thing I do, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, a moment ago uh, some of the things you're doing to help founders. What would be some of the most common mistakes that you've seen founders make during the acquisition process? 
Yeah, I see quite a bit, but the I'll give you the top three. The first one I would say is probably just overvaluing your startup. Like most SaaS companies, unfortunately, I'm sorry to tell this to founders, but it's not worth 10, 20 times annual recurring revenue. Unless you're Slack and you're growing like crazy or something like that. There's always exceptions, but generally I'd, I'd recommend. We have a report that we release every six months on valuations and multiples that we're seeing on MicroQuire. So I recommend checking that out if you're if you're just curious about what your company could be worth. And then number two, just not being prepared. So what mm. I mean by that is just, you know, not having any sort of relevant information because when you go to market, buyers are going to have some hard questions in terms of, you know, it's kind of like Shark Tank, like know your numbers. If you have a P&L grade, if you don't use our P&L builder, so buyers can quickly assess if your business is an acquisition opportunity we want to pursue. And also just being transparent and honest. Um, I think a lot of founders feel that they need to bring their business in like perfect presentation mode. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, what you want to do, and this is kind of you know counterintuitive, but it's perfectly okay to bring your business forward with like warts and all and all the stuff that's wrong with it. Because mm-hmm. when buyers hear that, they hear and think of growth opportunities. And that's what most exactly people are looking right. for is a business yeah. that, you know, it's kind of like go inside a house and you're like, hey, that's a, that door's a hole in it. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how to fix it. And you're like, oh, well, I fixed doors and I yeah. can yeah. fix that. And yeah, a lot, a lot of people don't realize this that, uh, you know, again, we, we work, uh, I work almost every day with an investor. And when they're looking at potential acquisitions, if there's nothing to improve, how can they make money, right? So if something is is reached its market cap and and you know sorry saturated the market and 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 is a perfect business, what, what levers, right? So the investors are going, what what levers can I adjust to keep growing this thing? And so the client, the companies that they're most excited about, at least in in, in the experience that you know uh, I've got and and more broadly uh, collector the collective has is you know they look at it and go hey this is great there's tons of market opportunity stable product good team and man if i went in there and did this this and this this thing would you know 5x 10x like that's the stuff that the buyers really drool over at least in in my experience yeah no i i completely agree too and there's nothing wrong with that too in terms of as a founder because you know i think as a founder you can sometimes only take a company so far whether that's through your experience or just you lose interest in the business or it's just time to sell a business because you've taken it to 5 million in revenue and you're not the person to take it to, you know, 50 million in revenue or what have you. And yeah, like giving buyers, like it's like the best way to sell your company. You're saying like, Hey, this is kind of, I've just never tried these things. I don't have experience in these things, but these could be potential opportunities. And just from personal um, experience, that was kind of how I positioned business apps for sale. I I was very honest with the things that I had done, I hadn't done, the things I was thinking about doing. One was a pricing change model where we actually, you know, went through a big Excel sheet of how this how I would run it. And those things again, really like you look at it from a buyer perspective and you say, there's a lot of potential here that just hasn't been tapped into. And so I'm going to pursue this this acquisition opportunity. What one more one more question on the micro acquire front, and, I've, and then I want to jump back to with you personally. 
So I saw recently that you had managed to secure acquire.com, great domain name, by the way. So congratulations you. uh, on your acquisition. Uh, so what, what, what's, what's the story there? Why, 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 the, why the name change and what's driving that? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, as, as MicroQuare has grown, we facilitate multi-million dollar acquisitions all the time. And so we really want to, you know, show just the startup ecosystem, the company that we're maturing into. We're not just for micro acquisitions. We're, we always kind of do this wordplay, like we have the domain macro acquire and micro acquire. (laughs) And so I always like to say, we, whether you want to sell your business for 10 K or up to a hundred million, we have buyers that can facilitate that. So I felt the micro was just a little limiting in terms of who we're selling to. And then candidly, a lot of founders don't want a micro acquisition. You know, they may want to sell, they want to sell their business for, you know, the maximum amount as possible. And I think that that subtle micro. Acquire, it's got got a powerful name to it. That's a great, that sounds like a a multi-billion dollar business, you know, and. uh, Yeah, it gives trust trust and, and credibility. But I think more importantly too, you know, micro means so many different things to so many different people. Like micro can be 1K, 10K, 100K, 10 million, mm-hmm. depending on who yeah, you are. And so right. <laughs> by dropping that, our hope is, you know, we, you know, kind of are able to market and, you know, message ourselves and position like, ourselves. You know, to, uh, micro acquires like the Elon Musk pocket change, like the $10 million acquisition for him <laughs> versus well, that. Uh, I, mean, I think a good, a good example is, you know, the banker that, you know, sent me an email, like we do these, yeah, yeah, exactly. the micro and it's like, you know, we can do these acquisitions too. And so I think, you know, without the micro in our name, we'll just be able to help that many more founders. Right. And that's really just the ultimate goal of micro acquire. Well, that uh, that's great. Again, I'm excited for you. So I've got I've got um, and you and, and the rest of the team, obviously. So I have one last final question for you. you you've communicated today about how you were uh, a, you know, a young a young entrepreneur. You you know, it sounds like you were a teenager even when you started business apps. If you think about the leader that you were then versus the the leader and founder and entrepreneur and CEO you are today, what's the biggest thing that's changed for you? That's a great question. I would say, well, when I was running business apps, I made every mistake you could possibly make. Uh, And, you know, fortunately, you learn a lot from, you know, failure and mistakes. And the biggest mistake I made with running business apps being so young was not hiring people smarter than me early enough, not delegating, just being working way too much in the business and not on the business. And so, now, when I think of growing MicroQuire, I'm always, instead of thinking of how can I fix this problem, I'm thinking of how can I find someone smarter than myself to not just fix the problem, but make it better. And so I never have to think about it. So I think of myself more, I work more on the business than say in the business, but I do like to lead by example. I do like to, you know, I, I, I feel the best leaders work for their teams, not the other way around. But I'd say that's the biggest change is just being aware that, you know, there's a saying that I really like where, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, um, go together. And so um, I'd say today the biggest difference is, you know, my focus on team building, culture, um, alignment around strategy and uh, just clear delegation as well. Because as a founder, you can't you can't be involved in every decision. You got to trust your team. 
I really love that as a as a soundbite. It, you know, it, it's well said and basically saying, look, yeah, if some some founders I think uh, pride themselves, and even just leaders. You don't have to be an entrepreneur for this to apply, but pride themselves to be able to roll up their sleeves and get in there and work in the business. To quote you, and I think people need to be more focused on working on the business, the broader vision, the broader strategy, and you can't be um, can't be tucked in there at every moment. And uh, again, and well said, you know, if you want to go first, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. So that's a great, great sentiment as well. What a great place uh, to kind of uh, wrap up today's uh, episode. I think there's some great, great insightful uh, points of view there. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, if people want to follow you or engage with you or learn more about you, you know, where, where should they be doing that? You can follow me on uh, Twitter, agazdecki, if you can spell that, or just LinkedIn, <laughs> or just shoot me an email, Andrew at MicroRequire. Um, happy to help any founders that may have questions about selling their business, growing their business. I'm a startup nerd, so don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I really enjoyed the chat. I'm sure anyone uh, listening, whether they tuned in live or tuned in the post show, watching on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or listening to the audio version of our podcast on uh, any of the platforms we stream on from Apple to Google and beyond. I think we'll really enjoy today's episode. I certainly really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, I hope we get a chance to meet in person one day. You seem like you'd be a great, great company. And uh, from one one entrepreneur to another, I I really salute everything you're doing for the community. So uh, mad respect. Thanks again, Andrew. I appreciate you coming today. And thanks, everyone. See you next week on OSHIP. The O Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O Ship Show.